Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. Jason is not here. This is Tony. You will talk to me today. Yeah, we're going to have Tony co-host this episode of Awesome Movie Year. It'll sound great. Everyone will love it. Uh, Why is Tony here? What's happening? Well, it is October. And so in between our seasons of Awesome Movie Year, we are looking at some scary movies for the Halloween season. And in this special episode, we are returning to our season on the films of 1980 to talk about one of the movies that I think a lot of people mentioned when we were asking about your favorite movies from 1980, and that is the Stanley Kubrick adaptation of Stephen King's The Shining, featuring Tony, the little boy who lives in the mouth of Danny Torrance and sounds sort of like that. Yeah, and he's uh, he's like a good presence for Danny. He's not like an evil mouth presence you know he's a helpful mouth presence that's true he he delivers warnings that are accurate in fact if they had listened to tony they could have avoided all of the events of the movie entirely really because tony warns danny that his family should not move to the overlook hotel in colorado and spend the winter there and uh, that's really the source of their problems you wonder though josh is it is that the source of their problems or was, you know, Jack Torrance going to, you know, break down in one way or another eventually anyway? That is true. And that is, I think, one of the issues that maybe we'll talk about that uh, differs here between the film and the book. But I think you're right in the way he is depicted in this movie. Jack Torrance is probably going to snap one way or another. It helps that he has evil ghosts kind of egging him on. But probably something bad would have happened with him at some point. I mean, not just that. He's just, uh, cabin fever, right? You're stuck in this huge, massive hotel for five months. And uh, clearly, he's not much of a writer. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of different reasons that uh, push him to the brink. That is true. Maybe he was a decent writer before. We don't know. He's He's clearly, it's something he's trying to get back to. So this movie is something that we now think of as this like towering classic. I mean, I think that's why we're talking about it. That's why so many people suggested it to us as something to talk about. But at the time that it was released, it was not particularly well received. It did all right at the box office. It grossed $47.3 million on its budget of $19 million. But I was watching this movie and thinking about so many of the particularly just the technical achievements. I mean, the set design in this movie and the cinematography is just outstanding. And I was thinking, oh, I'm, this must have been nominated for some Oscars, not remembering. And I've seen this movie before, and I'm sure I've looked up info about it before. But actually, it was not only not nominated for Oscars, it was nominated for two Razzies for Worst Director for Stanley Kubrick and Worst Actress for Shelley Duvall, although apparently that was later rescinded i don't know how much later but after shelly duvall talked like last year oh god yeah it took them that long after after she talked about all of the uh, sort of terror that she went through during the filming of this movie and how kubrick pushed her so far to the edge doing hundreds of takes and things like that that he's done so the razzies as we've often said the razzies should give themselves a razzie for this like how do you give a How do you give either of those nominations out? You know, Shelley Duvall played that terror and like she had to play the opposite of it to of what Jack Nicholson was doing to show just how horrifying the situation was. 
And as you said, man, uh, there's so many iconic shots, the sound design, the, you know, the music, every, and you know, the use of steady cam, like F off the Razzies. And then also there, when they said like, Oh, well we rescind this because we know Kubrick um, didn't treat Shelly Duval. I don't know, whatever the particulars are like rescind a thousand of your nominations. If it's because a, a director mistreated an actor or something like that, like, you're garbage. You're a Razzie. Shame on you. Shame on yeah. you, Razzies. I agree. And I think furthermore, as you said, like, this isn't a bad performance anyway. It's not like, well, we'll excuse it because she was under this particular stress or whatever. It, it's terrible. I, I think probably, you know, what Kubrick did in order to get that performance, but it's a really good performance. I think it's really convincing in its terror. And I think even in earlier scenes where she's not running in terror, there's a lot of convincing sort of trauma and having dealt with abuse and things like that that come through in this character. Maybe it's different from Stephen King's characterization and he was one who objected to that and maybe that was colored some of the reactions at the time. But for what it is within the film, I, I think it's a really good Yeah, this, I mean, if anything, you want to say maybe the character's not written fully three-dimensional. That's a fair critique, you know? Yeah. Two dimensions, whatever. But, you know, Josh, right off the bat, I've never read the, the book. Have you? I have, but not in a long, long time. I read tons and tons of Stephen King books when I was younger in middle school, high school, college. I don't remember where exactly this fell in there, but I did read it. It was so long ago that I remember very little about it. And I did not reread the novel <laughs> to prepare for this. Shame podcast. on you, that Josh. That was a little more. I know. You get yes. a Razzie. So I don't. <laughs> for not rereading <laughs> a giant book. But, um, you know, the difference from what I read is that the Wendy character in the book is this strong woman. And here she's more meek and, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, submissive. And. Kubrick yeah. was saying like, well, if she was already a strong woman, there would be no conflict because she'd be fighting back the whole time. And he needed to get her to this point, you know, where she was so terrified and all this horror had already happened before she was able to fight back. Right. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with her being strong. And if and there could be conflict between her and, and Jack still because they're fighting. So my feeling is, and again, I don't remember the book. I'm sure I liked it at the time because I liked every Stephen King book pretty much at the time. But I think it's perfectly fine to say that the way King treats the character is good and makes for a good book. And the way that Kubrick treats the character is different, but is also good and makes for a good movie. I, I don't think they have to be exactly the same in order for them both to be worthwhile. And we know that Stephen King was not a fan of Kubrick's take on this material at first and Kubrick wanted, you know, and got it in his contract to say he could do whatever he wanted with the material because he wanted to take it in a different direction. Right. And I think that's fine. I think that I can say that I love the Stephen King book and it was a great book, but movies don't have to be verbatim interpretations of their source material. I think that's often a problem. And maybe we'll talk about this later with stuff, other King stuff or King's own version of this that that doesn't necessarily make for a good movie. And so I, I prefer that the filmmaker has the freedom to make changes and to make the movie their movie and not just like a transcription of the book or whatever other source material there is. And this is a whole other larger issue with adaptations that we have, I think, a lot now, especially with fan bases that are so rabid and are so insistent on any adaptation being just 
exactly the same as the source material. Kubrick said of the novel, it was the first time that I had read to the end of a novel that was sent to me with a view to a possible film adaptation. I was absorbed in its reading and it seemed to me that its plot ideas and structure were much more imaginative than the usual in the horror genre. I thought that a great movie could come from here. And then Stephen King said, what's basically wrong with Kubrick's version of The Shining is that it's a film by a man who thinks too much and feels too little. And that's why for all its virtuoso effects, it never gets you by the throat and hangs on the way real horror should. I mean, I think that criticism of Kubrick is a common criticism in general of his work, not just this film, and one that I am sympathetic to. And I think in this film that Stephen King isn't wrong, that the characters' emotional lives are less important than the construction of the film and the technical details. I think it's so amazing in all of that, that it still works. But I didn't necessarily buy, especially the idea that this is a couple that was in love at one time or that had some sort of connection that is being severed, that is being damaged by their experience here in the hotel. I never quite bought into that. I still think this is a great movie, but I think there are some aspects that it falls short in and isn't necessarily even aiming for that King obviously finds very, very important. Yeah, I think you're right. Um... On top of that, though, I do see, you know, look, this is a guy who needs a job and he takes a job with the hopes of something more to come from it. Right. And he's already messed up his family dynamic. So he's hanging on to something that we hear later on. He really doesn't want to hang on to. Actually, that's not <laughs> later on that he says it. That's the character in the Dr. Sleep, uh, the the Jack Torrance and Dr. Sleep, who just like lays it out there like, Ugh, families take up all your time and ruin all your days on earth. And it's like, cool, that's great. That's so literal. Awesome. Um, but I, I could see how they were a couple at one point in time, but you know, it's like, they got a little kid, they're trying to hang on and uh, they, they don't, they don't do a good job of it, Josh. They, they definitely don't. But I mean, I think as you were saying, we get the impression that they already weren't right. The, the overlook just kind of nudges them a bit. So um, critics at the time were not really very kind to this, even though Kubrick was, of course, a towering filmmaker in 1980. And Stephen King wasn't necessarily the huge cultural institution that he is now, although he was a very, very successful writer. But the response to this movie was, was mostly negative. Janet Maslin in The New York Times was one of the more generous critics. She said, meticulously detailed and never less than fascinating. The Shining may be the first movie that ever made its audience jump with a title that simply says Tuesday. In The Shining, Mr. Kubrick tries simultaneously to unfold a story of the occult and a family drama. The domestic half of the tale is by far the more effective, partly because the supernatural story knows frustratingly little rhyme or reason, even by supernatural standards. Many of the film's more bewildering, nightmarish touches are ill-explained holdovers from Stephen King's novel, upon which Mr. Kubrick and Diane Johnson base their shrewd and economical screenplay. Most of their alterations in the story, which has been changed and improved considerably, have the effect of letting it run deeper. Hmm. Uh, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, you can question certain things. One thing I question is how economical can a screenplay be for a two and a half hour movie? But that's me. 
Um, right. Well, when you're at, when you're adapting a novel, and this is not as long as a lot of other Stephen King novels, but certainly as a Stephen King novel, I'm sure it has a lot of things that you can pare down. I mean, without the occult elements, it's it's just a, a you know a family drama about a you know unit fa- falling apart. I felt the occult stuff, I guess, or supernatural stuff worked really well here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of Stephen King's complaints was that. Kubrick toned that down a lot from the novel and the idea in the novel that really Jack Torrance is like possessed by the evil spirit of the hotel and it's not him doing these terrible things. And I think it's better, more interesting maybe when it is seizing on aspects of his personality that it amplifies. But there are supernatural things in the novel that are left out here, I think, or changed or toned down. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to see this as just a drama about a marriage falling apart while they're in isolation or whatever. I don't think that would be nearly as interesting. One of the other things that like every review that I looked at says this movie is not scary. And yet it's known as one of the scariest movies ever, I think. Yeah, I think that's insane because, you know, we've talked about this on here a lot, like the type of horror movies that I relate to or that I really go for are like the psychological thrillers where you get encapsulated in the character and, and, and their minds. And, and that's why I thought this was so amazing, man. Like I was, I was just watching this all unravel, like, holy cow, like all three of them are unraveling in so many different ways all at once. Um, so I don't understand that at all. Um, and also Josh, I wanted to make one more point cause I already brought it up and we could talk about it later, but you know, the Dr. Sleep adaptation does go so close with all those supernatural elements and it takes you so far out of the movie most of the time you're like what is this mess yeah i mean that's something that king preferred and he a made his own adaptation in 1997 that we'll talk about and fully endorsed dr sleep the version of that that was in the movie so clearly that's his thing and it works for him and it works for a lot of his fans. Doesn't necessarily work for, for you, Jason, and, and, and other people who maybe come at this from a different angle and not being immersed in the world of, of Stephen King. But I mean, going back to the idea of like, is this scary? I think there's so many terrifying images in this movie that even if you have trouble with the emotional connection to the characters, that just the, the images that Kubrick puts on screen can't help but be unsettling, can't help but but terrify you, I think, or at least give you this sense of uneasiness. I would add to that the music and sound design really amps this thing up to such a creepy level. And that starts from the opening helicopter shot where you're hearing all those kind of like distorted voices coming through and uh, while they're while Jack is driving up to the Overlook Hotel. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think all of those aspects really add up. But uh, Gary Arnold in the Washington Post, another one who really was down on this idea of whether it was scary, he said, Stanley Kubrick's production of The Shining, a ponderous, lackluster distillation of Stephen King's best-selling novel, looms as the big letdown of the new film season. I can't recall a more elaborately ineffective scare movie. You might say that The Shining has no peers. Few directors achieve the treacherous luxury of spending five years and 12 to 15 million dollars on such a peerlessly wrong-headed finished product. While retaining the outline of King's Haunted House fable, Kubrick obscures or weakens most of the underlying psychological turmoil 
and minimizes the sinister possibilities in the setting. Having invited us to a Halloween party, he declines to provide the appropriate tingly refreshments. You know, I think you kind of nailed it. I feel the opposite of that. Like if we went overboard with it, instead of like this, like, you know, the twins here or bear man there or whatever it is, like, you know, it would just be, it would just be hitting you over the head. This is, this is that slow burn, much like the Jack Torrance character in the film going from eh, on the edge to in the mouth of madness. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about that, the Jack Torrance character is that he already seems so close to the edge at the beginning that there's less of an evolution than in the novel. And then I think what, what King was aiming for. Um, but in a way that's, it's also scary because you can see from the beginning of the movie, this is a guy who is going to be scary. And that may not be what the source material had, but in the context of the film, I think it works because right away you're like, when is this going to erupt? I, I agree. And, you know, you're right. Just King said like, well, they're already going to know he was a crazy person because he played a crazy person and one flew over the cuckoo's well, nest. Right. You that know? to me is less important than the way he plays the role in this. Movie, I, I agree. It's a, see it from it's the a silly. It's a silly thing to say about one of the greatest actors in film history. Right. But yeah. one of the things that we like about Jack Nicholson is he's he's got so many characters on the edge in all those ways. Right. So. Um, would you want to spend five months alone and, you know, snowed in in a giant hotel with him? Probably not. I don't I don't I don't get it. No, no. I think that is the thing that right away in that like the scene where they're driving up to the overlook and they're talking about the Donner party. Um, and he has that line like he learned about I can't do a Jack Nicholson impression, but, you know, he learned about it on the television. And just like this weird innocuous thing that you're like, oh, man, this guy's demented. He learned about it on the television. There you go. That's better. <laughs> right there, you're like, oh, this is gonna, this guy's gonna snap. You know it. Even though that line in and of, of itself isn't like. I mean, I mean, no, you're right though because like he gets the job right and he calls home and like you know the conversation isn't much. It's like she goes, "Did you get the job?" Like there's no like love between them. Like we talked about, right. and then he just says, "I think you and Danny are gonna really like it here." <laughs> And right. it's like, In oh, way that implies like, I think you and Dan are going to be murdered. <laughs> right, exactly. But I mean, that's the that's the brilliance of Nicholson. And also, the, like we talked about, the it's so shocking to me that anyone could say Shelly Duvall gave a, gave a bad performance. The depths of which she had to go to to get there is amazing. I thought it was an incredible performance. I, I agree. Um, so finally, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker said, if Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is about anything that you can be sure of, it's tracking. Kubrick loves the ultra-smooth tracking shots made possible by the Steadicam. Yet though we may admire the effects, we're never drawn in by them, mesmerized. When we see a flash of bloody cadavers or observe a torrent of blood pouring from an elevator, we're not frightened because Kubrick's absorption in film technology distances us. Each shot seems rigorously calculated, meticulous, and he keeps the scenes going for so long that any suspense dissipates. Over and over, the camera tracks the characters, and by the climax, when we're running around in the hedge maze on the hotel grounds, the rhythmic sameness has worn us down. That's wild, man, because, you know, we literally just had this conversation about Zemeckis, right? Yes. And, and I think we all came out on the side that Zemeckis is too concerned with the technology, but... 
for Kubrick, I feel like all the technology he developed, at least, you know, from all the things I've seen, like play really well. And I would disagree on that right away because those trap, those steady cam shots, like where Danny's like kind of exploring the space. Right. And it's like, you know, you hear him on the hard floor and then you hear him on the carpet and the hard floor again. And like right off there, that's unsettling and really great sound design. Right. And then, you know, when he stops in front of room 237 and you got that kind of low angle uh, over the shoulder, I think it is all there for for reasons beyond just showing off technology. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we should note this is one of the first movies to use the Steadicam and the actual inventor of the Steadicam. Uh, I think Garrett Brown is his name, operated the camera on this film. So it, it, Kubrick clearly is enamored of what was at the time a new technology. But I agree. And I'm I'm sure, as I've mentioned when we talked about Robert Zemeckis, as I've mentioned multiple times when we've talked about Peter, Peter Jackson, I, I'm someone who's very critical of directors who seem more involved with technology than they are with storytelling. That's something that always bugs me. But I think the technology and the visual style, things that aren't technology like the set design that's just really, really well composed, enhance everything about this and they are what makes it frightening. So it's just fascinating to see how almost universally negatively this movie was regarded by critics at the time. And, and this is not, I mean, I think the positive perspective is the way that most people view it now. Yeah. Josh, do you think, you know, Kubrick, uh, by all accounts was literally a genius, right? He had such a high IQ and everything. Do you think that when this came out and the reviews were in, he was, he thought to himself, they'll get it one day. You know, I don't I don't know, you know, and I, I don't know uh, that much about Stanley Kubrick. I feel like he's one because he was this sort of eccentric genius. He's one of these people that I could see him just like never reading any reviews and not paying attention to that at all. Um, but, yeah, I think he's also someone who's very confident in his own vision and that he wouldn't have been shaken or given any doubts by a particularly like a negative response to this, even though in part making this movie in the first place was a response to the lack of success of his previous film, um, Barry Lyndon. And he wanted to make a horror movie, I think partially because this is like, oh, here's a, a populist kind of pulp genre thing that maybe will reach an audience better than my last film did. Well, I mean, it, it's funny because 1980, what did we talk about? Raging Bull, Scorsese, same type of thing. All these directors were in that place. But if you talk to like filmmakers, right, how many well-known filmmakers love Barry Lyndon, right? You know, it's a, it's a totally, it's just, I, I, I got nothing else, Josh. That's it. Right. I mean, I actually, I haven't seen Barry Lyndon, but that is uh, obvious. Yes. is also a movie that is incredibly well-regarded now, not as famous as The Shining, certainly, but very, very beloved by critics and filmmakers, as you're saying. You know, Josh, what's interesting, though, is, right, like, we're talking about Scorsese and Kubrick in 80, and it's like, oh, we need to get a hit. We're going to do something more mainstream. So they do Raging Bull and The Shining. Tell me today where those two would fit in and what Marvel movie would give them this type of freedom, right? Right, right. I will say that right now, if there was a filmmaker who was thinking I need to make something more mainstream, adapting a Stephen King novel is a thing still that would be done. But yeah, would they do it in this incredibly uh, auteurist way? Maybe not. Yeah. And 
And something like Raging Bull, like a boxing movie, I don't know if that's necessary. Like a biopic, I guess that's still something that is a reliable mainstream kind of thing. So, but yeah, would the approach be the same? Right, right. I think that's more of what uh, what I must be getting at because that makes me yes. sound smarter. So I'll go with that one. That's what I'm yeah, saying. No, I, I, I think you're right. <laughs> That even if Kubrick is looking at this as like, oh, this is something more mainstream, he's not toning back his own personal vision or style or anything like that. He's not making this movie differently than he would make another. Right. The fact that he sent like a scout team to um, uh, Colorado to what is the Stanley Hotel there? And they did like a a three month scout on on that property and the history of Colorado. And then they rebuilt all these amazing sets. in England, right at EMI uh, or at the Elm Street studio, like it's just incredible the way he was able to maneuver things and give this such a unique feel. Like, I don't know if there's a more, you call it auteur, but more individual feeling horror movie out there. Yeah. I mean, the, just again, I keep saying about the sets, but the fact that they built all of these sets from scratch, it's just like astonishing. And the way that they look so many of these areas and rooms in the hotel look so different. The amount of effort and creativity and design sense that went into all that is just mind blowing. Yeah. You know, right now, if you made this movie, you'd, it'd probably be all on virtual sets or something. No one would build this many sets anymore for a film. And so just looking at it is just astonishing. I, I agree with you. And the scope, it gives you a real scope of the hotel and all that they're in for. Yes. So Jason, I feel like from the way you're talking about it, you had not seen this movie before? I'd never seen it, Josh. That's that's the end of that sentence. Yeah, all right. But, but, now, <laughs> but, but now, Josh, I've seen it. Yeah, that's good. That's why we're talking about it. So, um, yeah, I had, I, I like I said, I was a huge Stephen King fan, and I probably read the book before seeing the movie, um, which at that time would have been less common, I think, if it was in the mid-90s or something like that. But I read all his books. And I think when I saw this movie at first, probably around that time when I was in in, um, junior high or high school or something like that, I was such a hardcore Stephen King fan that I think my impression of it was not that great. It was like, eh, you know, King is right. It doesn't capture his book or whatever. And I watched it again like 10 years ago when I did a whole series on my blog about Stephen King adaptations. And I'm mixed on Kubrick overall, but I was really, really impressed with it again. If I had any reservations from seeing it the first time, they really went away. And I think I can now, like I was saying, be able to say the book is good for what it is. The movie is great for what it is. They may be different, but that doesn't make the movie bad. Um, And I just, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed by this film. It's, I would say my favorite Kubrick film. And I think one of my favorite King adaptations, even if it's not a perfect a reflection of the book. Well, so, well, I'll give you a spoiler, Josh. I think this yes. might now be my favorite horror movie ever that I've seen. Wow. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Nice. So, uh, Dave, did you, I feel like this is something that you would have seen at an inappropriately young age. Probably. Yeah. I, when I, so I saw this in 2019, the 4k theatrical re-release. That was the first time I remember watching it, but I'm <laughs> sure I saw it as a little kid or something because there were a lot of parts that like just were like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. But uh, yeah, first time I remember watching it, though, is, yeah, 2019. And then I just watched it before Dr. Sleep came out and now again now. And yeah, I, I think it's great. Um, 
you know, I, 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 you guys are talking about the, the, we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure, but like the mix of supernatural elements and family, you know, breaking down elements. And I just think it like balances that so well. Yeah. But here's the real question. Have either of you gone as one of the Grady twins in a joint Halloween costume? No, but that is certainly popular. And and Dave, from what you're saying about recognizing elements of it, I feel like this is one of those movies that even if you haven't seen it, there's so many images and elements from this movie that are in, in pop culture that you would yeah. recognize even if you're coming to the movie for the first time because they're just so familiar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, we always talk about how things are spoofed into pop culture. This is one of the more spoofed films that we've ever covered, I'd say. It is, it is. So Jason, I mean, I feel like this is, there's so much with this movie, we could talk about it forever, but is there anything else, particularly with the background that you want to talk about here? Uh, no, Josh, we did cover a lot here, I think. So I think we can uh, move on to our general thoughts, but I did want to say, we talk about, uh, we've mentioned Dr. Sleep a few times, or it just came out a few years ago, 39 years after The Shining came out. Yes, and I'm sure we'll talk more about Dr. Sleep later because there's a lot to say about that as well. But for now, we'll come back and get into more of our general thoughts on The Shining. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Halloween episode, we are returning to 1980 to talk about Stanley Kubrick's version of Stephen King's The Shining. And we've really delved into a lot here already, especially related to how this adapts the book, which Jason, I know that you haven't read and I don't remember a lot about, but there is a lot of tension there between Stephen King and and this film in terms of how he perceived it. But you said that this is now maybe your favorite horror movie of all time. I think it is because I never like watch a movie and then within maybe a day think to myself like, I got to watch that again, like right now, because like I feel I feel like this is one of those movies that's so absorbing. Right. The first time you're watching it on the level just to see it. But like there are so many things I'm sure I didn't see. And we know like he's quote unquote Easter egg guy. Right. And all these layers of symbolism and this and that. But I mean, honestly, I would just watch it again for for the stuff that I did like, you know, the performances, the technology, the steady cam stuff, uh, the sets, all that stuff. But I just, I just feel like I basically scratched the surface on this thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, and, and we'll probably talk about theories and, and the room 237 documentary later. Um, there is all that, but I think it's just so immersive on its own that it just envelops you in this experience. And that even if, as I keep saying, maybe you don't connect with the, the characters emotionally on a full level, the environment, the world is so immersive that you feel like you're there with them. And, and the way that the movie is shot, the way that the sets are designed, made to disorient you, you know, because they built all these sets, they're not actual connected rooms in any way. The layout of the overlook makes no sense. The rooms, you, you don't know how they connect. It feels like they're in this sort of nightmare, surreal world as soon as they step into the hotel and you are right there with them. And I think that's just on that surface level is good enough. I mean, that's enough to make this one of the great horror movies. Right. And and what's outside a hedge maze that takes you an hour to get out of if you get into yes. it, right? Um, but you're you're right. You know, we talk about this all the time as as film nerds, right? Like there's certain movies that we've covered clerks where you can watch it at home and be like, that's awesome. 
But like, don't you want to just see this on the biggest screen possible with an audience right next to you? Yeah. And I, you know, Dave was saying he had had that experience a few years ago. I never have. I've only watched this movie at home. But I mean, did it feel different watching it in a theater, Dave? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, right from those opening, you know, scenes of the the flyover with the score. I mean, that you could imagine how great that was in a big screen experience. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. I'm sure this is a movie that would be would be really cool to see in a theater sometime in the future. Yeah, certain films, Josh, you know, they slip through the cracks. We all have like classics that we're like catching up on. And uh, but this is one where I watch it. I'm like, why did I take so long to watch this thing, man? Um, And even when we were talking about our 1980 season, you know, this was like a finalist. Obviously, it would have fit in plenty of categories and it just didn't, uh, you know, fit in the overall season. So I'm so glad we got to do this right now. Yeah, I'm really excited that you like this so much because I know you're not necessarily always big on horror. And I think we've talked about some horror movies in the past that just don't really do it for you. So I'm glad that you really like this. And I think this is a movie. I mean, this is a movie that is beloved by many, many, many horror fans, even Stephen King fans. Um, But this is one of those horror movies that certainly has a wider resonance with film nerds, uh, cultural critics, things like that, that because it's maybe because it's Stanley Kubrick, or because there is so much going on in terms of these layers that it reaches beyond this this horror audience. But it is a great horror movie. Kubrick maybe wasn't a horror guy. But one other thing that I thought watching this movie was like, it's a shame he didn't make more horror movies because that kind of technical precision that he was so good at would have been perfect for other horror movies, for other kinds of adaptations. Imagine him making a version of Dracula or Frankenstein or something like that. I think it could have been amazing. I agree. You know, it's funny because like, I think, you know, like uh, a movie that I would cite as like a horror movie that I really love is like 28 Days Later, right? Mm -hmm. And you're talking about Danny Boyle, another master of the form, right? A master of the craft. But, you know, in the the opening segment, we were talking about, you know, this criticism of like, Maybe he's too removed. Um, but I think that really worked for, for this because he was so focused on creating something Kubrickian, you know, that like it just is its own thing. And and what a thing it is. And and to go further, Josh, I would say like after watching this, like I would totally ask you guys now that you know how much like I like this movie. What are some other horror movies that I have missed over the years that I should go see? I mean, horror movies that are similar to The Shining. I'm not, I'd have to think about that. And they don't have to be, and I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm not saying like, oh, give me like a Shining knockoff, but you know, something viscerally and emotionally that takes you to down similar roads. You know, like I said, right. the 28 Days Later did. For right. Me. And I think something kind of auteurist, like you were saying, from someone like Stanley Kubrick or Danny Boyle, who is not necessarily known as a horror director but is bringing their particular talents to the genre maybe only just one time. I think as Danny Boyle's only made one horror movie, really, or am I forgetting something? Uh, Shallow Grave, you could say, is uh, horror adjacent, I guess. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd have to think about that, but I'm glad you're so excited about horror now. Um, Jason, you were just saying uh, just recently that you really loved X earlier this year, and we brought up The Shining as a puzzle piece on that episode. I think that that kind of... Uh, you know, certainly has some of this kind of cinematic language going on in X uh, as well. Um, and then Josh brought brought up uh, The Shining on our Midsommar episode uh, a couple of years back. So, uh, you know, the Ari Aster, the, the kind of A24 horror that's, you know, very popular right now, kind of, kind of, you know, uses some of this, these kind of ideas. 
Yeah, I, I, and I got to catch up on Ari Oster. And X I liked, I didn't love, but I do want to watch Pearl. Um, and, you know, speaking of that, you know, I, you you look at like a Robert Eggers, right? This is like, this is yeah. heavily uh, influencing guys like that. And, and I, I, that's what I want to see. Like, because jumps, it's like, you know, I worked in a haunted attraction, as you remember, Josh, on yeah. the strip. So like, I know jump scares. I get jump scares. Like I need something more than that for me to invest in. Yeah, I think Dave, you mm-hmm. made a lot of good suggestions there. I mean, both Ari Aster films, uh, Hereditary as well as Midsummer, I think are really in this same vein. And The Witch, the first Robert Eggers film as well. Um, more so than X, I think if you want to talk about Ty West, The House of the Devil has this mm-hmm. same immersive, like just building sense of dread. And is also sort of slowly paced. It's not as long as The Shining, but it has a similar. I mean, that's another complaint that came up in a bunch of reviews that this movie was too slow. Uh, but I think in a good way that movie is. So th- those are all. I mean, I'm sure we could do a whole episode on. You know, we do a, a breaking it apart episode, right? Yeah, there on The Shining. We're, we're already working on it, guys. It, it's, it's influences, <laughs> but those are those are awesome some good suggestions. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, going back just in my mind to things that I like, like, you know, I always liked like the others. I liked uh, Stoker, stuff like that, which is as much about setting and setting a mood as it is about like the uh, results of the piece. Right. But I also think we shouldn't discount the actual scariness of this film. Like I was saying, I mean, you see those, the Grady twins, they're creepy as hell. You see mm-hmm. the the blood gushing from the elevator. That's horrifying. Uh, the reactions that Danny has, little little Danny Lloyd, who plays uh, Danny Torrance in this film, and the, the the faces that he makes, it's it's scary. Right, and also, I mean, again, Shelley Duvall, you go with her on that journey, but not just that, Josh. How terrifying is the other stuff where he's talking to Grady? And, you know, he's just like in the bathroom and he's like, you know, you've always been the caretaker. You're going to have to do handle this. Right. And it's this calm hallucination that he's having that it's like, oh, man, this is just getting worse and worse. And like, I like those scenes where he's you know talking to Lloyd, the bartender, or he's talking to uh, Delbert Grady, who doesn't even I, you know. You chop, you killed your wife and chopped up your daughter. I don't recall that, you know, and it's just like, where is this all going, man? So and the reveal, the famous reveal of, uh, you know, his book, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy is like, this is what you've been writing for two, three months. Like we're in we're we're fucked here. (laughs) Right. And I think another thing that that reveal does is it shows you that that deterioration has been going on from the start, right? That he's not, he didn't write all those pages that day when she's terrified of what he might do. He's been writing those pages. He's been immersed in this insanity for the entire time that they've been there. And it's conveyed all in just her looking through those manuscript pages. Right. And I agree with you. I'm not saying like, oh, I liked it because it wasn't, uh, it didn't get me on the horror level. I, I think it's more scary because it's not just like, uh, jump scare type thing. There is there is a deeper investment in these things. Yeah, absolutely. And there, I don't know if there's any really like jump scares in this film, but it just has that that sense of dread. And that does come from, in part, the fact that Jack Torrance is clearly not right from the very beginning of the movie. I mean, one of the scenes, we talk about Shelley Duvall's performance, especially later as she's super, super terrified in some of those takes where where Kubrick had her do it 
hundred plus times and, and maybe she really was traumatized and that's some genuine emotional reaction coming across. But also early in the movie, the scene where she talks to the psychiatrist or the doctor, not a psychiatrist, some doctor who's come to look at Danny and is talking right. about the incident where Jack grabbed Danny and dislocated his shoulder. And she's got this like superficial, like, oh, it's okay. He made a mistake. Everything's worked out. But you can see, I feel like in Shelley Duvall's performance, just below the surface, her terror of like, what might my husband do? Or it's not okay. And I'm traumatized by this. And I'm in an abusive relationship. And I'm trying to pretend that it's fine. Yes. Um, and, you know, since like, it's, it's interesting, because we've only really talked about those two, like, you don't like kid actors, this kid crushes this role, right? Danny Lloyd is just, I mean, he nails this thing, I think. Yeah, he does. And, and in part, because he's sort of off-putting. And that's, I think, what you want is that little Danny has this power. He has the shining and it makes him a weird kid. It makes him kind of unpleasant. And that's what he should be. That even if they weren't at the Overlook and you just met Danny like at school or something, you'd be like, mm, this kid, there's something wrong with this kid. I don't want to be around him. And, and he conveys that really well. And the other one I wanted to point out is Scatman Crothers, who I, yes. I've yeah. mentioned before. He's as Dick Halloran, like, he's just great. He's just great. He is, and he brings that warmth. You know, we talk about Kubrick being cold, and Jack is kind of a menace from the beginning, and Wendy Shelley Duvall is 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 withdrawn, and Danny. But Scatman Crothers comes in as Dick, and he's just this nice, pleasant guy. He's friendly. He's fun. He is very compassionate and empathetic. I mean, he flies across the country to try to help them just because he feels like something might be wrong. That was a mistake. Yeesh. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed it was. And yeah. another thing I think that King did not like, because that's not the result in the book. Right. But it's a whole like, uh, even when you first meet him and like they reveal the shining and it's like, would you like some ice cream, Doc? And he's talking to him from mind to mind. Like, it's so blatant and like off-putting at the same time. Right. Like, that's what I mean. Like, it just feels like someone keeps punching you in the ribs during this movie or something. Yeah, it it definitely has that has that overall effect. And right when when they show The Shining and the music is ominous and it has this this sort of uh, the 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 ambient sound drops out and he says even though when he says do you want some ice cream which is like the nicest thing you can possibly say you're like oh that's fucked up he's just asking him about ice cream in his mind yeah and I know you know one of the criticisms you read was like does it all fit together and maybe like and I I really feel like I'm one of those people like, oh, I, you know, loose ends, blah, blah, blah. I don't yes. like those. But maybe in this instance, like the fact that there are so many like frayed edges around this thing, like maybe that just makes it all the more effective. I think so. They're they're immersed in this world where nothing can be trusted. Again, going back to like the design of the hotel and the fact that the stuff doesn't fit together. I, I saw somewhere, I don't know if it was in one of the reviews I read or it was on Letterboxd, but somebody complaining about the fact that like in that scene that I was just talking about with Shelley Duvall and the doctor, she says that 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 Jack dislocated Danny's shoulder like five months ago. And then when Jack is talking to Lloyd, he says it was three years ago. And it's like, even things like that are distorted. And maybe that was a mistake. Maybe because they kept rewriting the script on the day that they were shooting, somebody screwed that up and didn't notice it. But whatever the reason is, it, it adds to that unsettling, like, we don't know what is time. Have we been here for three months? Have we been here for all of time? It's impossible to say. Yeah. And 
I mean, spoilers coming here. That plays into the ending because, you know, that ending is right. We get we get the whole thing where uh, uh, Wendy and Danny finally escape. And um, we see that Jack Torrance says frozen to death. And then we're on this picture in the Overlook and it says July 4th ball, you know, Overlook Hotel, July 4th ball, 1921. And you see Jack Nicholson. Possibly Jack Torrance, possibly a Grady character. We don't know. Like there. And and I'm like, huh, wouldn't have anyone like Ullman who interviewed him for this job? Wouldn't they have noticed him or what? But like the whole thing is like so disconcerting. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe that just works. Like the thing is, like, again, when I said I'm just scratching the surface, I'm looking at my notes. This is going to be a 12 hour podcast <laughs> if we don't stop. So. <laughs> Um, instead of that, Josh, I think we all know we uh, revere it. So let's rate it out of uh, what do you want to rate it out of? Five axes that smash doors, five here's sure. Johnny's. Sure. Uh, you all know. those things. All of those things are great. Let's uh, let's do it. Let's give it uh, how many axes out of five you want to. So, Josh, when I finished watching it, it was four. But because I've been so fascinated by it since. It's a four and a half axis for me. All right. And, and I wonder on the next viewing if it'll be even higher. Maybe so. Yeah. you. I, I love how enthused you are about this film. So I, I'm going to give it four, um, which was what I rated it the last time I saw it. I, I think it is great. There are some aspects of the characters that I don't connect with quite enough, but it's just an amazing achievement. So certainly a great film, four out of five for me. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm also going four, but like it's raised every time I've watched it. And I feel like it might go up even next time I watch it. Seriously. Six. Na- Six out of five. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get there. Let's get you, there. You guys are your fours. Now who's the horror fan? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're you're a huge fan here. And I, I love that you are. So yeah, there's a lot of the theories and uh, reflections and interpretations and all sorts of stuff. And we'll talk about some of that when we come back and do the legacy of The Shining. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special Halloween episode, we've been looking back to our season on the films of 1980 to talk about The Shining, which has apparently become Jason's new favorite horror movie, which I think is really great. I think uh, Stanley Kubrick would be a good Halloween costume. (laughs) You know, the kind of jacket (laughs) and that frizzy hair. And, you know, Dave is probably halfway there already with this Uh facial hair and the hair on his head. So, you know. And then each time you have a conversation with someone, you can tell them to do it over again (laughs) multiple times. Yeah. Just to get it right. Um, As you know, Josh, one year I went as James Lipton, host of the Inside the Actors Studio, and I brought blue note cards with me like he used to have to ask all the actors. And no matter what someone's costume was, I would look at a blue note card and ask him a question as if they were on Inside the Actors Studio. So that was was pretty awesome. Josh, I just wanted to say with this episode, uh, we've already talked a lot about Jack Nicholson in our um, A Few Good Men episode, which the Patreon listeners will have already heard. And uh, those who aren't on Patreon, you'll probably get to hear it at some point. Yeah. And we talked about him when we talked about Tim Burton's Batman as well. So we've definitely we've definitely covered Jack Nicholson. And Josh, we've talked about Shelley Duvall with three women. Yes. Yes, we have. And Josh, you've already announced our next season is 1953. 
which might maybe we'll talk about the director of this thing first feature uh so we're gonna really focus on other aspects of uh this film for this segment yeah i mean i think we can talk a little about kubrick's post shining career maybe not before this but i mean i was surprised to realize that he only made two more movies after this that um it took him a long time to get these movies going he made full metal jacket in 1987 and then eyes wide shut uh just before he passed away in 1999 in fact i think it was finished after he died so I mean, we think of this now as like one of the heights of his career because it's so beloved. But obviously, as we were just discussing, it wasn't very well received. And maybe that made it more difficult for him to get other projects off the ground. I don't think it made anything difficult for him. I mean, to get off the ground, he had his uh, fans, his acolytes, his supporters. He probably could have done anything. It's just that, you know, he took a lot of time to do whatever he was doing as he got further on up the years. That's true. But I do wonder, I mean, he has a whole list of unrealized projects and things that he was working on for many, many years at the time of his death that he never was able to get off the ground. So, I I mean, I would think that has to have some factor. I mean, these are big productions that require big budgets. And if it's not certain that they'll bring the right return, then people aren't necessarily going to finance them. Hey, Josh, did you have any of those unrealized projects that really uh, stuck out to you as one that you would have liked to have seen? Um, You know, I don't know. I didn't I didn't go through that whole list this time, actually. I mean, I know one of them was AI, which Steven Spielberg, of course, eventually made. And I believe one of them was a big epic about Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. um, Which uh, doesn't really appeal to me. But obviously, you know, historical epics and war films were something that Kubrick was known for earlier in his career. So was is there anything else on that list that looks intriguing to you? Josh, this is just from Wikipedia, so take it as... Sure. But it's from his biographer, John Baxter. Kubrick had shown an interest in directing a pornographic film based on a satirical novel written by Terry Southern titled Blue Movie about a director who makes Hollywood's first big-budget porn film. I mean, come on! Uh-huh. You know? Right. I would have seen that. I mean, I would have seen all of these things, obviously, because if it was a Kubrick movie, it would have been interesting and worth seeing, even if it turned out to be a disaster. But yeah, so it's weird to think of this as like toward the end of his career, I guess is just what I'm what I'm saying. Um, just going back to another one of our awesome movie year favorites, when the rights to The Lord of the Rings came up and were sold to United Artists, uh, the Beatles approached Kubrick to direct them in a film adaptation. What? Come on. <laughs> that that would have been almost certainly an incredibly bad film, but would have been fascinating. I'm trying like who would play which role? Do we have like Ringo as Frodo or something? Oh, like no, or... the ring. I don't know. You know, they made one. I mean, Richard Lester got good movies out of them. They weren't all Sergeant but, uh, Pepper's only lonely hard clubs band, right? Well, I mean, those those Richard like Hard Day's Night or whatever. I mean, those are them playing themselves in movies about being in a crazy rock band. They're not playing hobbits and dwarves in a fantasy. And I guess they'd all four have to play different hobbits, right? You couldn't have like Paul McCartney. They're just going to trade off the role of Frodo Well, well, no, you know, he had his two friends in the films, right? So he'd have to, you couldn't have like Paul McCartney being like, you shall not pass. (laughs) Yeah, Paul McCartney is Gandalf. Maybe John Lennon can play Saruman and be the villain. This is awful. Everything about this would have been terrible. Uh, Those are two projects that would have been worth pursuing, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's uh, that's not what we got. But um, well, Josh, I watched Room Two Thirty Seven, the documentary about all of the symbolism in this movie. And it's amazing that you could take a subject that I like and a subject that I've studied for years, uh, you know, kind of film history and make such a boring documentary about it. But um, they did say one of the interesting things was that one of the theories is that uh, Kubrick was symbolically talking about how he faked the moon landing footage and all the walking on the moon stuff, right? So, and that's what this was uh, really symbolizing. So, uh, you know, there's a, c- a good project that he doesn't get credit for all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he deserves uh, he deserves credit for faking the moon landing. Yeah, I mean, I, we could talk about Room 237 in a moment, but I just wanted to mention that related to that, and I, I had completely forgotten about this. There's actually a movie called Moonwalkers from 2015 that is about the supposed effort to recruit Stanley Kubrick to fake the moon landing. That's sort of a weird caper comedy. And I I was trying to remember, I confused this apparently with another Stanley Kubrick movie that starred John Malkovich as this con artist who pretended to be Stanley Kubrick called Color Me Kubrick. And I was thinking that Malkovich played Kubrick in this moon landing movie, but I don't think anyone plays Kubrick in that movie. I think he's more of a figure in the shadows that the characters are trying to recruit. But the fact that there's two movies that are sort of tangentially about weird things from his life, I think, is sort of telling about the the very interesting, strange life that he led. Actually, there's three. There's a French mockumentary from 2002 called Operation Loon that's all about the same thing. The faking of the moon landing. Yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, wait, just to be clear, like in in room 237, they're not saying the moon landing was faked. They're saying the footage that we saw was all fake. So, you know, whatever. I mean, whatever they're saying in Room 237 is a bunch of garbage, I have to say. I I hate that movie so much. Uh, I I feel like that is a movie that it it, it fails both to be insightful about The Shining and to be insightful about these crazy people who have these ridiculous theories about The Shining because of the way that it's constructed. And you never see the people and they're only speaking in voiceover. So you often don't know which one is which. You don't know nothing about their lives or how they develop these theories. And it's like one of those crazy person YouTube videos. I just, I watched that movie because it was highly acclaimed as a documentary from whatever year it came out. And because I liked The Shining and I just loathed it. So I I mean, I guess you found it boring. I just found no. it like, I remember almost turning it off because I hated it. I, so I, that was a trudge to get through. And speaking of trudges to get through, ay ay ay, Dr. Sleep. two hours and 30 minutes and uh, just all those like we talked about all those kind of um uh staying staying closer to the vest with the supernatural elements that really worked in the shining they really went for him in dr sleep and it just took me right out of the whole thing the tone was a little all over the place in that movie and not a good film yeah yeah i know dave hates that movie i just think think it's so laughably just silly it's it's just a big goof. Yeah, I mean, I found it less silly than you did, but Jason, I think you're right and I think part of the problem maybe for you especially or for anyone watching Doctor Sleep like right after watching The Shining is that it is not despite what Mike Flanagan does in recreating set design and elements of the movie of The Shining, it is not a sequel to The Shining movie. It is a sequel to The Shining book, and it stays very faithful to Stephen King's sequel novel, Dr. Sleep. And as we've talked about already a lot, 
King did not like the Kubrick movie. And so he made a sequel based on his conception of The Shining. And I find Dr. Sleep fun as a Stephen King movie. All of those cheesy, uh, overstated elements are very Stephen King. And Dave, as we've uh, talked about, I know you dislike Stephen King, but mm. I love Stephen King. And I think, so, I mean, sometimes that really doesn't work. But I think in Dr. Sleep, you know, Mike Flanagan is someone who's adapted multiple King things and is very much on King's wavelength. And as a cheesy supernatural thing, I find it enjoyable. I think Rebecca Ferguson is great as the villain, but no way. I can absolutely see how you would not enjoy it as a sequel to The Shining movie. I don't think any of those things worked, and I don't think she really worked either. But it's funny because, Josh, on the Doctor Sleep script, Stephen King said, everything that I ever disliked about the Kubrick version of The Shining is redeemed for me here. But meanwhile... Uh, Diane Johnson, the co-writer of The Shining, said of <laughs> the book, The Shining, among us, I think she's talking about like literary professors, maybe among us, The Shining, the novel is not a part of great literature. It is scary. It is effective and it works without further ado. But it is precisely interesting to see how a very bad book can also be very effective. It's quite pretentious. But it's also true that it has less scruples when destroying it. One is aware that a great work of art is not being destroyed. <laughs> right. And I think that that really gets at these two opposite perspectives, whereas Kubrick and Diane Johnson are coming at this. And maybe Kubrick was a little less harsh about the book because we had that quote earlier where he talked about how fascinated he was while reading it. But they're still coming at it as just fodder for them to make the movie that they want to make. Right. They're not having any sort of reverence for Stephen King or for that book. Whereas Flanagan is approaching it in the exact opposite way, that he is extremely reverent towards Stephen King and views King and The Shining and Dr. Sleep certainly as great works of art and is trying to respect that. And I guess I'm able to appreciate both of those approaches. I think it's fine, as I'm saying, for Kubrick or any filmmaker to come in and take source material and discard elements of it and make it into their own thing. But I do enjoy Stephen King and I do enjoy seeing adaptations that more capture his cheesy tone like Dr. Sleep does. So I, I feel like I can appreciate both, even though The Shining is a much, much better movie. Well, yeah, I don't mind both in theory. I just think that Dr. Sleep doesn't work and The Shining clearly does. So um, yeah, well, that's fair. That's fair. Guinness Book of World Records, Kubrick, the scene where I think our friend Shelley is uh, screaming as maybe, is it the reaction to Jack cutting the door open 127 Probably. times? 127. Oh, wow. when she wa when she walks backwards up the stairs. Yeah, it's that yeah. one. It's right. When she's when she's walking back, yeah, up the stairs holding the baseball bat, that is the record for what how many times did they do it? 127. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I guess maybe Guinness has documented that, but I wonder if there are certain directors like David Fincher, who's known for doing ridiculous number of takes, who maybe exceeded that 127 number in one of his movies at one point. Yeah, you would think like maybe he'd be like, I'm going to break the record today. <laughs> what a terrible record to break and for the poor actors who were working with him. Circling back to the, the Stephen King sort of adversarial relationship with this, one thing that, Jason, that I know you didn't see, but that I have seen is Stephen King's own version, the 1997 TV movie that he wrote the screenplay for himself that was directed by Mick Garris, who is a longtime Stephen King collaborator, has directed a lot of Stephen King TV movies, starring Stephen Weber as Jack Torrance. 
and Rebecca DeMornay as Wendy Torrance and uh, Melvin Van Peebles as Dick Halloran. And it is a great example of why you don't always want to adapt Stephen King books in this reverent way. And I haven't seen it since then. And that was at a time when I would watch any Stephen King thing. And I was looking to see if maybe I had my VHS tape of it that I had recorded off TV because I'm sure I did at the time because I always did that and I don't anymore. But it, it, it definitely captures nothing but the literalness of it. And another thing that it does and that we haven't talked about is that the hedge maze is not in Stephen right. King's novel, um, that instead King has like topiary animals that come to life which just from a special effects standpoint, were not feasible in 1980. And we're probably not really feasible in 1997 either, but they did it anyway. And it does not look good. Josh, all I can say to that is no TV and no beer make Homer go crazy. <laughs> is it, isn't it make Homer go something, something? Maybe. You're, go yeah, crazy? Yeah. Don't mind if I do. Right. I still remember <laughs> did it. all the lines from that. I did multiple people's lines very poorly. Yeah, you nailed that it. That is, of course, the, the Shinnin, the, uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror parody featuring Groundskeeper Willie as the Dick Halloran figure who talks about the Shinnin. Um, they're supposed to be making a Halloran like uh, origin series, which could be fun. How Oof. he got the... No. I, I think it was canceled. Uh, like they, they put a stop on that, but uh, because Dr. Sleep didn't do that well. But Overlook is still in development, right? About the hotel at Bad Robot. Is that true? Yeah, I think these are two different things. There yeah. was a potential sequel to Dr. Sleep that Mike Flanagan wanted to make that isn't happening. And then there is this TV series, Jason, that you're talking about, Overlook, that was in development at HBO Max from J.J. Abrams that they rejected, but it may still be potentially repurposed elsewhere. I kind of hope not. I feel like we've done this enough. Let's leave it alone. <laughs> you know, we talked earlier about how great the soundtrack is. Uh, Wendy Carlos had done another score, Clockwork Orange for uh, Kubrick, but also Tron after this, and also worked with Weird Al on the Peter and the Wolf uh, thing, which is a really interesting project. I'm glad we got Weird Al back in there. Yeah, I think not not that much of her music is used, though, right? She right. was frustrated because right. so much of it is those existing like classical compositions that Kubrick throws in yeah. instead. Um, Jason, you said, I mean, we were going to talk about some of the other stars here. Danny Lloyd, who plays Danny Torrance and who we've praised here, did not really did not go on to have an acting career. He only did one more role in 1982 before retiring at age 10. Yeah, at least he retired and didn't get trashed by the Razzies like that kid in Gloria, though. Oh, yeah, that poor kid. No, it seems like he had a perfectly nice life. He's gone on to become a teacher. He got to have a cameo in Dr. Sleep that they uh, reached out to him to do his first on-screen role in, in however many, you know, Who was like 40 he? years or whatever. He was just a spectator in a baseball game scene, uh, I think, uh, something like that. I don't think he had a line necessarily, but they did. They showed him on screen, you know, just to get him in there. And uh, Scatman Crothers, great in this. Uh, of course, a, a great musician and did a lot of voice work. Jazz the Autobot in the Transformers. Dude, the, the Aristocats. I think he's got that big solo in the Aristocats. Everybody, everybody, <laughs> everybody <laughs> wants to be a cat. He also played Hong Kong okay. Fooey. And was in four Jack Nicholson movies, King of Marvin Gardens, The Fortune, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest along with this one. Nice. Yeah. As we said, he's just this like nice, warm presence in a movie that doesn't have very much of that. Yeah. Um, and Josh, we should mention Diane Johnson. She wrote La, 
Le Affair, Le Marriage, and Le Divorce, the, the last of which was a pretty big uh, movie about 10 or 15 years ago. She wrote the books of those. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe the books were better. That movie wasn't very good. But I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, well, that was a good call. Um, I, I also wanted to mention the Overlook Film Festival, which I was kind of disappointed. I know it's, it's a, become a big horror festival, and the first year of it actually took place at the Timberline Lodge in Oregon, which is where they shot the exteriors for The Shining, not, of course, the interiors that were designed in the studio. Um, but then they just moved it to New Orleans, which has nothing to do with the Overlook. So that's kind of a bummer that it doesn't actually take place there. I guess they're thinking that it's, you know, like a, a town that's known for like supernatural elements. And, you know, I guess, but it's not known for being in The Shining. No. So or for being the <laughs> Overlook Hotel. No. I don't know if maybe it wasn't practical to have it at that hotel, but to me, that's like a cool hook. And now it's just like another horror festival. I'm sure it's a cool festival, but still hey, Josh, disappointing. One one more thing about the uh, Scatman uh, Crothers character, Dick Halloran. How about the art? Yes. How about the artwork in his home? That was great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's not really about the legacy, but we can go back and the Kubrick clearly is wanting to draw your attention to those pictures of naked women in, in Dick Halloran's home yeah. in Miami. But you know what? We don't really learn much about Dick Halloran's personal life, but I, I bet he does all right for himself. So yeah, for African him. queens in the nude, it looks like, huh? So. Yeah. I mean, why not? You spend half your year at the Haunted Overlook Hotel. You might as well get some action uh, in the other part of the year while you're in Miami. I, right? I enjoyed that that uh, aspect of it. It's just got a basic apartment and all these princesses, you know, just uh, showing the goods. Yes. Yes, they are indeed. So uh, anything else on the legacy of this film that you want to talk about here, Jason? No, as we said, Josh, there's more Kubrick to come from us. And I, uh, I'm excited to go deeper. I've seen a lot of Kubrick movies. I know you have too, but there's still more on the list for us. There are indeed. And we're going to talk about early Kubrick in a, in a couple episodes from now, which I'm not nearly as familiar with. So that'll be cool. But for now, that is The Shining. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can mentally project yourself at us online and on social media. <laughs> I'm telling them through my head right now where to find this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, nice. it's working. So. Uh, yeah, we're on social media, awesomemovieyear.com, awesomemovieyear on Facebook and Instagram, awesomemoviepod on Twitter. I am Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the social medias. Um, uh, Go for Jason on Letterboxd is much better than the website Go for Jason, which is stuck in a hedge maze somewhere. <laughs> you can find me at uh, joshbellhateseverything.com, which is also kind of stuck somewhere, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter, and SignalBleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Dave, tell them about your special guest coming up on Piecing It Together. Dave always has a special guest. He's doing an episode with Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where that was going, but I wasn't sure either. But yeah, I'll Thank take you. it. What, what, what movie is Tony going to offer his expertise on? I hope, I, I hope it's something not horror at all. It's like a rom com or something along those lines. Yeah, Tony has varied tastes. <laughs> Ticket to Paradise. So, maybe. Jason, we have reached the end of our special Halloween uh, interlude. And what is coming up in our next episode? Josh. It's uh, it's the holiday season for you because it's the season you've been waiting for. It's episode one of our season on 1953, 
And it's the box office winner of that year, The Robe. So tune in next time for The Robe. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Dave, you are hearing things. It's Tony.